0: I'm here, here, we're all here. So I, I think we're live now and um, wanna just kick off by thanking Troy for being with us. This is uh, again, I think fourth or fifth in our Lunch and Learn series. We'll do a uh, just a quick stage set to NLC and, and why we do these and then we'll do maybe a 15 or 20 minute just kind of dialogue with you, Troy, and then turn it over for questions. Next Level Communication, for context, we're a high-stakes communication advisory. We serve primarily emerging market managers, both corporate managers and and VC private equity fund managers, and help them communicate their message and build trust and influence with global stakeholders. We, being in the business of, of using communication to build trust and influence, we're really voraciously curious and have a huge appetite for learning about what are the tools and frameworks that exist out there and are currently under development for how do you build trust with different stakeholders? And so when we saw that uh, Guide had just published with a, a very kind of clean and clear message and new framework that you developed yourself for building trust in the in the Canada experience realm, we wanted to get you in here to join us for uh, one of our lunch and learns to help share some of your experience in developing these frameworks and and how you think about building trust and what the role of communication in kind of stakeholder influence in your industry is like. So I think uh, with that in mind, it might be helpful if you, uh, we're, we also have, besides an interest in communication frameworks, we also have a deep love for elevator pitches. So maybe uh, maybe we could just kick off with Troy if you do an elevator pitch for yourself and, and for the company guide, uh, what do you guys do? So I'm Troy. Salton, I'm one of the
1: co-founders of a company called Guide. This is um, the second company I've now worked on myself in the like, recruiting technology space. Uh-huh. Guide is a software platform that helps companies personalize their interview experience, increase the engagement they have during the interview process from applicants. Uh-huh. So it helps companies prevent candidates from getting disinterested mid-flight, dropping out of the process, and ultimately leads to like a faster, more efficient, more effective hiring process especially in markets where companies are hiring for very competitive roles, high know you know, knowledge work, software engineering, et cetera. My backgrounds in recruiting, I like to joke that I've, you know, taken a lot of Tylenol along the way. I'm weirdly attracted to like the recruiting space because I feel it's so broken. It's like a human game at its core, but it's also lacking in so much technology. I think to automate the things, to make more efficient the things That the human probably shouldn't be doing, that software can be doing better and then free up like people to do what people do best, which is like build relationships and build trust. And I think that's largely what it comes down to when you're making a job decision. And so a lot of guides software is designed to produce a better candidate experience, as we would say uh, in our lexicon. But really what that comes down to, and this is what we posit with our new framework, it really is synonymous with just increasing the amount of trust one's able to build with their candidates as they go through the interview process. And our kind of thesis is that if there is a fit at the fundamental level, well, then the only thing left to do is build trust. And if you lose trust of your candidate throughout the interview experience, you lose the candidate Um, or we say you you lose everything. You lose the relationship. And obviously this is true in many other contexts, but for recruiting. And yeah, the framework is a really a starting point that we've built to further the thinking. It's very much an unfinished project. So we can get into that uh, if helpful.
0: So you mentioned assuming the fundamental fit is there, everything else is is trust. So can we understand the, the fundamental fit are sort of like the hard qualifications for the job, the expertise, the skills. That's all the, that's the, the fundamental fit of the candidate for the role. And then the candidate experience and the trust that will ultimately determine whether they accept this position or, or how far they go down the funnel. That's what the trust framework is is meant to address.
1: Yeah, if you just take the case where you have multiple options and you sort of isolate all the variables and you say like, as a candidate, I'm interested, like these two companies or five companies meet all of my criteria, my desires, my attributes that I'm looking for in my next role, that is just another way to frame it. The only other thing then that would differentiate these companies is like the amount of trust that I feel going through the process. Outside of the hard criteria that's being met or not by a company, there is this, human component. There's a belief that I'm getting what I'm being sold, that the information I'm getting is accurate. I can more accurately predict what it's like to actually work here. I trust that I'm building a clear picture of what my life will be like on the other side of this decision. And obviously that's quite a squishy human thing. And so it's not quite a science. And I think our framework is designed to put some language and some words around a line of questioning to sort of further towards the North Star versus like scientifically solve the problem. Our, our goal is to give folks like common language and a goalpost to move towards without necessarily the assumption there is some like perfect approach.
0: So let's go right in there for the, how the trust framework does that. How do you take this squishy, personal, interpersonal relationship-driven kind of subjective experience and as you say, start to put some language on it. Maybe not not an exact science, but taking a step in the scientific direction.
1: You know, it's interesting as we were building this, there's like, there are the raw like facts or learnings you have in the experience as you're sort of going about this process. And then there's like the decisions you make that would increase the likelihood that this work you're building propagates into the world, right? So so like the marketing stuff. And in this case, They're pretty close, but you want to build a real raw framework, but you also want it to get adopted because by and large, the more the framework gets adopted, the more successful it is, the the better for the industry, et cetera. And so our framework is just a bunch of words. And the question is like, well, what do these words mean? And so we got into like, okay, we can come up with an acronym that's clever, that makes sense, that is like, it's sensical. But really the question is like, how do you measure these things? So we kind of looked around and we felt like, we had built a good picture of what are the what are the things we're measuring if not this? Or if people are trying to measure this, how, what's their approach? And like one big insight that we had was, okay, companies are trying to define like something, like a, a quality measure of experience from their point of view to the candidates. So they're looking at like quantitative metrics, how, qu- how quick are people moving through the process? What are their drop off rates, et cetera? And our view is like, wait a second, like if this thing we're trying to measure is the candidate experience, well, they're the only one who can kind of rate their experience. So one big fundamental like thing we believed was like, the only way to measure this is, is from the candidate's point of view. They're the only ones who could provide the measure. It's, it, it is a sort of guttural, emotional, human thing. So so our decision was, okay, we're just going to survey the candidate on several dimensions that we believe lead to what a candidate would ultimately conclude is like a high trust environment or a high trust outcome. And really what we ultimately did, we've iterated on this over time, is we realized that there's, there's varying levels of trust at various parts of the process. And then at the end, you have an outcome. <laughs> and of course, there's anomalies where you have high trust and a bad outcome or low trust and a good outcome. And there's obviously going to be other factors that play there. But by and large, We came to the conclusion that the way that we oriented the ultimate five pillars of our framework, which I can get into, did correlate positively with a higher likelihood that a candidate where there was a fit would make it to the end of your process. And some of this was qualitative. I mean, we're a startup. You can't get perfect data. It's a very hard problem. And some of it was quantitative. Some of it was qualitative. So we kind of married both of those to get like a confidence level. And then we shipped the framework with the mindset, hey. This is a hard problem. It's definitely not a perfect science. Let's sh- let's offer this to the community, was our idea. And if it resonates and it's sort of helpful in current form, let's evolve it together. So let's open source it, like the word that we used, in the way that you would open source a I don't know, piece of technology and hope the community like contributes. Like our belief was, you know, if we're right about this even like a little bit, Like the community should be able to help us in total, make it much better than we could with just a few people in a room over like a few years of time.
0: Like, you know, this should hopefully morph into something more sophisticated and comprehensive over time. I definitely want to hear about that the thinking behind open sourcing it versus, you know, I I think there's a devil's advocate argument that says, like, if this is going to be something that you invest in developing, this could be a differentiated secret sauce or um, proprietary IP. And so I'd like to hear about how that decision was made. But uh, first, I think maybe it would be helpful if you could just walk us through what are the five components of the trust framework and how did you decide that these were the five?
1: In a lot of both qualitative conversations, looking at a lot of data that was peripheral to this core problem, like conversion rates through a funnel, feedback surveys that were filled out on sort of arbitrary questions of quality, like a CNPS survey, for example, and then also doing direct experiments with candidates on these dimensions and honing in. We came to what we defined as like five key traits that led to trust, and so the word trust is an acronym. Uh, T-R-U-S-T stands for transparency, reciprocity, unity, speed, and truthfulness, and we found that if a candidate believes that there's a sufficient amount of transparency um, being provided by the company throughout their process, they have access to information, there's an equal sense of give and take. This company's like investing in me as much as I'm investing in them, so this reciprocity. Unity is like a sense of fairness, Equality, like this, is like it feels like a fair assessment. I'm, I'm getting a fair shot. Um, I can kind of see myself as one of one of these people. I can fit. I'm kind of included. Speed is really about pace. It's really about moving at the ideal pace from my point of view. Sometimes I want to move slower, and I'm feeling like you're being a little pushy. And sometimes I'm like, I want to move a lot faster, and I haven't heard back in like three weeks. So it's we do see a positive correlate to moving faster tends to have better outcomes for like our customers and people in the industry. But it's actually really about. Asking the candidate what their ideal pace is and trying to move at that pace. And then truthfulness is, do I believe that the the information I do have access to through whatever level of transparency you have, do I believe that it's accurate? Do I believe this is true? Do I feel like I'm getting spin on the story? Like, do I, again, trust the information? And if you add the score up on each of these dimensions, you get in total what we call a candidate trust score. And you can measure this at various points of the interview process and then look at a curve of where you gain trust and lose trust by just simply combining these five dimensions. So that's in and the gist. And the way we measure this is we've created five key questions using what's called in the lexicon, a longitudinal survey, which means we, we basically survey the same cohort of people or the same candidate multiple times with the same questions over a period of time. And then we survey them with these five questions at various points in the interview process and one question per pillar. So, The transparency question is pretty straightforward. Do you feel like this company has been sufficiently transparent? Again, it's it's all framed in your opinion, right? As a candidate, do I feel they've been sufficiently transparent based on whatever I would consider is sufficient? Kind of, it's a very subjective survey on purpose. We're kind of trying to illuminate that if you feel as the company that you've been extremely transparent, but the candidate feels that you've been dodgy or vague it doesn't matter. Your your trust score ought to be low because it's the candidate's experience. It's the cash value of everything that you're doing. And so this is kind of the inside out nudge that we want to like offer to the industry and really make that point home. So sorry. I I hope that might have answered your question.
0: Absolutely. I wanna just shoot out like how did you decide that these were the five? If you imagine something like likability, like do I like the people that I'm interviewing? That's another subjective aspect that would, you know, signal something about my willingness to work there. Is that somehow covered by one of these five or is it is it not? And if not for for what reason? Yeah, sorry. This is the
1: point that I didn't get to and it's a great it's a great question. And it kind of connects with how I opened about this language game that we're kind of playing and the, the desire to like market this thing versus like create some sort of objective measure. And for some of these, like transparency, that's been punching us in the face for years of building this business. Like we hear that that we literally hear that word from candidates and companies alike. It's like one of the most if you just measure like a conversation by like a word cloud conversation around what matters to the company. And then you have the same conversation with a candidate. Like the word transparency would be one of the largest words in the cloud. It's the one that's most mentioned. So that one's like really easy. Okay, great. That's not a hard problem. But then there are other ones like unity. And this is where um, you can kind of, I think, get creative and realize that the effectiveness of the framework is a measure of how far and wide it propagates <laughs> into the world. And so you actually, like what makes a framework effective I would argue is how well it's marketed and so you want to create something that's easily memorable that's really grokkable that's you don't need to like read a book to understand i can really remember the acronym maybe and then it helps me understand the principle so i can behave in that way as second nature over time you want to lower the barrier to like the learning curve and so with something like unity we could have went with a lot of things it's kind of a weird word but it worked with the trust acronym so we used a word that could definitely mean like inclusiveness and um, an equal sense of fairness and we have, and I love that word because it's a word that we've used in our company anyway, and it and it worked. Another example is we like trust was the center of the bullseye for us, so we were like, okay, a better word actually here, like a more technically accurate word was pace. But speed gets the job done, and it makes this thing easier to understand. Like it's an easy, easier to remember. It fits the acronym, etc. So there really is some massaging. I don't feel any desire to hide because I I actually really do believe that. In producing something like this, part of one's job is to make it easily adoptable, and so that's that's making it memorable. It's putting whatever spin on it. Again, my view is that what really matters is the questions that underlie each of these, not as much the like single word that tries to like capture that. That's really like a pointer for like the human brain to like go, what does this thing really mean again? Oh, uh, it's a U, Unity. I remember that question. It's like a it's a tool to figure out the thing that actually matters.
0: Tell us about the process of developing this. It. It's some point internally, I'm I'm assuming at, at a kind of strategic level, you said, Hey, we need a way to measure this thing that is really important, but we can't, you know, it's not a KPI. There's no quantitative thing around it. Walk us through, like, did you go out and look to see if there was anything else out there? Like, was there anything else out there? You know, was there a discussion about like, are we qualified to come up with our own thing? Or like, will it be resource intensive? Tell us about the decision to do this. And then the actual development process of what resources were needed and how long it took and what the challenges were and how you you knew you were done.
1: Am I allowed to say that I, you know, had an epiphany while hiking in the jungle or is that off limits? No, unfortunately this was not an epiphany in the jungle. When we first started the company, as I'm sure you all notice, there is opportunities in a world where you're dealing with like humans and processes that you want to repeat in very uncertain environments, moods, communication styles. There's just a lot of squishy territory. And so we want, like, in order to teach people things, you, you got to find ways to like make things simple and memorable in a framework that can like be repeatable. It's maybe not always perfect, but it's like generally a great starting point to build. We kind of knew from day one that if we're in the business of improving candidate experience, we also have to be in the business of measuring it. There was never really a way around it, but. Initially, we kind of viewed this as like we have to marry the problem in order to eventually like improve it or solve it. And that, that meant adopting the metrics that other people used to to measure this. And we were actually like even more surprised than we thought we'd be at how ununified and unstandardized the measures, the existing measures were for this. And as we went deeper, you know, over the years, we actually realized that. Not only was there not a measure that everybody in the industry agreed on, like a canonical metric or something, there was not even consensus on the definition of the thing at all. So we realized, okay, this is like actually a deeper problem. Like we have to have an opinion about what is the candidate experience specifically and what isn't it. So we started there and developed an opinion, but I don't know that we are ever, we feel we're done. I think, I think we took a stab really on early in our product and we built a survey that was basically a weekend experiment because we we built this platform that people were using to improve candidate experience. And we, we wanted to test whether candidates would have any motivation to tell the company back how they were experiencing them. And it was just a random set of like five questions. It was basically like, what's going really well, what's not. And what we can can we improve? And there was some, like, options. It was almost, we made it easy and fun, almost like an Uber rating. Had nothing to do with the trust framework. And this, like, ended up being not only one of our more popular modules, but it also, like, lasted in our product for years. We just never really went back to it. It kind of ticked the box. It helped our customers understand. We built them a dashboard for it, et cetera. And when we started developing our, like, thesis around the trust framework, which has just kind of been one of those things you, you're thinking about from day one, you know, you need to like build, there's opportunity to improve the way we think about defining this thing and measuring it because that's the business we're in. And if we can't like further the thinking here, like we probably don't have a ton of credibility, like, or, or reason or, or or approach really. And so what's funny is when we started to get the like questions around, like, do we even have the authority to do this, the imposter syndrome, the, the skepticism, we said, wait a second, we like made a survey up in like a weekend two years ago. And it's been it's like one of the most popular features, most useful features in our product. And this we've actually put a lot of thought into, and we we did want to get our like wits about us before we just did it hastily. And so we had the luxury of a lot of eyeballs on our product, and so we ran some experiments, it included a few months of iterating through the actual trust frame or questions, the way we framed them and what those five pillars were like before we cared about like fitting it into a neat, like marketable framework. And so we got thousands of data points from actual candidates who filled out these actual surveys in their guide as they were actually interviewing with our customers. We kind of snuck our own survey in behind the feedback survey that our customers gave them, saying, oh, hey, we're Guy, we're the ones that build the software that you're in. Do you mind answering a few questions for us that we won't share with the company that you're interviewing with? And so, of course, that was like a nice luxury to have. And it gave us a lot more confidence because we had like a data set of several thousand that we can look at. So that said, even to the day that we published it and to now after, which is it's just like been a couple of weeks and we cite this in the in the piece that we wrote like this is not a finished product this is a very raw crude early product that we have confidence in based on what we've seen but our data set is very small our context is really small we're a really small startup we work with mostly only tech companies like this may be totally wrong please help us improve it i hope that in a couple of years like this gets challenged adopted improved on hardened. And I would be surprised. I I would say we were really on to something real if it doesn't like I, I just don't think that it's plausible that we nail it on the first run. And so it goes back to the open source ethos, like the way that we thought we can build something really that matters over a few years period is by involving like the community and involving way more brains than we have to put on the problem.
0: I think you've answered kind of the question about the trade-off with proprietary IP or the open source approach. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you have anything more that you want to say about that, but it, it seems like you made a gut call, maybe both philosophically and tactically, that this will be most impactful and will ultimately reach its most useful form if you can sort of crowdsource feedback and, and improvements from users in the industry. If that's the case, tell us like, how is it going? How has it been received initially? What sort of channels have you built in to collect feedback on it? And how do you imagine the kind of iterative update or evolution taking place going forward? Will it always be a something that is a guide product and, and you are kind of receiving feedback on and iterating as a, a tool? Or is it something that is just, it belongs to the world and you know I can go in and I don't know is it, is it like become like a wiki thing where where anybody can change you know update you know the trust thing or is there is there it, it does it become a protocol and it's all uh, it's it, it becomes crypto trust.
1: So I will add one thing around the decision. I think It's like the unspoken thing to like open source it. There are business incentives obviously, and they matter, and so. I think a key part of our decision and probably anyone's decision is like, what do you sell as a business? And what's most core to the IP? Like, what is your IP if not this framework? And so our view was really driven by, yes, all the things you said, but it was also largely driven by the fact that we don't view ourselves as a business that sells surveys or measurement tools. We sell a platform That is a tool for improvement. And in order to show the customer how much we do improve, feedback and surveys or a measure is a necessary component for them to understand the return they're getting on their time and spend. But that's not the core product for us, if you will. It it is certainly very central to our business and our product, but it's actually just we're not in the game. We don't see ourselves in the game of like primarily the, the measurement of it. We are the improvement of it. And the only way we can really prove that (laughs) is by helping you measure it. So that was obviously a part of the decision too, is that we can open source the measure and everybody can use it. And our product is designed to improve these things, these five pillars by and large. That's what our product does. And so our belief is that the more people that buy into the framework over time and find it useful and valuable, well, here's how to do it yourself without our software, but our software is purpose-built to do this exact thing. So if you want like the best technology in the world to solve this problem, you know where to find us. We're thinking obviously a lot about this framework And we can bring our expertise in a software with a software approach. But if not, you know, we wanted to make it easy to adopt. We wanted to make it clear that this wasn't purely a marketing piece. We created a survey template that was free and we created a one page on exactly how how to roll out the survey. And it's lightweight and it's challenging to do without software. But there also isn't purpose-built software that makes it easy to do besides guides. So it it was beneficial, I think, for us. And we had several thousand people read the, the piece in the industry, comments on it. I think from our point of view, it was successful. But I'm not sure that we had a lot of expectations for like the initial launch a lot of our energy and our interest is in like the long tail. It's like when we launching a framework, like it isn't really easy to implement this right now. You do need to wire together some other tools or buy guide. And we didn't want that to be true, but we also didn't want to wait another year until we had like a free version of our software that you can really easily adopt and all this other stuff in order to like start measuring your candidate experience and improving on it. So we were like, just like a product we want to get this out early want to it this out often and we're probably wrong on a lot of things. So We'd rather figure that out now and let it improve our products and process and framework versus like waiting till it's fully polished. I think that's hard. I think the hardest piece wasn't feeling comfortable shipping the framework to the public. It was actually articulating it in a way because we kind of always had this framework you know I've been in the industry for 10 years there's always these principles at play whatever you call them and you kind of know you know you know what you know at least know what hypotheses to go test with the data right like those are coming from some intuition and I would say you got to write it down (laughs) and when you start to write it down you realize your thinking is not as clear as you thought it was and so for me articulating in a way that somebody else could understand it was like actually the bulk of the work I'm not
0: even sure how effective it was in the end but I'm, I'm particularly curious about how you said there needs to be this link between what you're measuring and then what your product kind of delivers. How much does, will the trust framework guide your product development moving forward? Like how integrated is this framework with your product? Can they be, you know, if they can be used separately is kind of what you were just suggesting is like even even companies that that aren't buying guide can use this to, to kind of measure their own progress. But, you know, how dominant will this be in your product development and your product strategy?
1: Today, it doesn't exist in our product directly at all. It's really that our product was built on top of like a set of problems and solutions that we eventually sort of came to articulate in the terms of the trust framework. So it's very true to say, looking backwards, that our product helps you improve your trust score by way of this way, this measure. It was emergent. We didn't build the framework and then build the product. What we want to do in our game plan moving forward, I think this is part of what was uncomfortably early, quote unquote, like about shipping it when we did, was we're giving you this framework. You can test it. We've run experiments in our product, but we don't give you this framework in product form to like click a couple of buttons and deploy in our product yet at all. And we will probably in the next you know handful of months and we'll prioritize it along with a lot of other things that our customers want. And so it's a high priority, but not the first. And so, as I mentioned, like our game is really improving the experience. And so today, the way this shows up is we have data in the random samples that we take on the trust surveys across our full global. Our customers buy us by guide and then deliver our software to their candidates. So for every one customer we get, we we reach a lot of candidates. And so we can run samples and collect data and then that helps us further understand whether our product with the customer as a conduit is like delivering on these principles however hiring like training somebody to do something and they have to go do it on their own like there's a lot that's not in our control like our customer's interview process or how they show up during the interview or their attitude that's out of our software's control and so the candidate experience might be really bad if our software and products are doing a really good job so we we just have to take all that into account and equip the customer to use this in a way that benefits them. And we, over time, I think, one of the benefits of having a canonical system, a, a widely adopted, single, unified like standard, is that you can benchmark. And so over time, we hope to not only like roll this out into the product, but enable some access to industry benchmarks, because one of the most popular questions that we get that we can't give answers to is like, you know, how do we compare to another company you know, on these dimensions or on candidate experience vaguely? So we want to quantify it, like define it, we want to quantify it, and then we want to offer you some insights into how you stack up.
0: Troy, last question for me, and then we'll turn it over to Q&A. What have you learned from the process and what advice would you give to other startups that are looking to develop proprietary frameworks or open source frameworks to measure the impact of their work? I think just like ship it. Like like get your thoughts together, get
1: confidence high enough. It doesn't need to be perfect.
0: Science is not about
1: being right. It's about like improving in the face of new information. And so for us, it's been just a challenge to like just get it out the door and like start learning and do it in really like as scrappy form as you can and like be willing to be wrong. You know, like I'm open minded. I would be somewhat delighted if in a year somebody like came up with something that truly was better for reasons that I believed were true, because I think that we'd be smarter if that were the case. So I had to get very comfortable with that and realize that because we're open sourcing this, because we're offering this to other people, the goal isn't directly to benefit us. Like the goal is to offer something that's actually the most valuable thing. And, you know, we'll at least start with the first of but. Like, who knows if, if we'll own the ball at the end of the game, you know? So get it out there. You don't need to be like a perfectly replicable science, I would say. I don't think so. Not in a such a human, squishy game. Like, you can always find counterfactuals. Like, f- for our framework, like, I know for sure you we can find anomalies. We find them in the data. Like, y- you can show me a candidate that has low trust and still joins. And, and I can show you the factors that probably led to that. But on average, you'll see a correlation between higher trust and higher win rates and like that's our current hypothesis.
0: Thank you, Troy. Really inspired by that. Team, any questions for Troy? Let's turn it over to Q&A. What is the correlation between a high trust score and a successful recruitment? Like how much can knocking the trust out of the park compensate or overweigh things like compensation or working conditions or, you know, the the scope of work, etc., other factors that that would lead a candidate to take a job?
1: I would say holding all those factors constant, there is a positive correlation that varies dramatically depending on the context. So a small company that's hiring a few people is very different than a a large company hiring at volume. A candidate who has 10 options versus a candidate who has one would tell a very different story. So it's actually very hard to think about a hiring outcome because sometimes the successful hiring outcome is the candidate not getting hired. For example, big challenge in recruiting is if you sort of promise a company that you will increase the likelihood that a given set of candidates Pass one stage of the interview process and, and get to the next. They might say, we value the fact that few candidates get to the next stage. That tells us that we're filtering well or we're screening well. It's actually quite hard to come up with one single correlate. I think our data set needs to get way bigger and us to have, it's going to look like something like, I don't, I imagine I want our data sets big enough that if you've ever seen like personality tests, like the big five and they're like, They can show some correlation, like a 0.2 correlation between some of the factors of big five and likelihood to succeed in a certain type of job. It's like the correlation seems very small, but a slightly positive correlation is like astronomically higher than any other correlate we can find with a personality test. Often, So I assume it will be something like that where there's a ton of edge cases, but on average, by and large, you see a slightly positive outcome usually measured today. What we what we think about what we're starting to hone in on is what we call unwanted drop off. So it's actually a candidate who drops out of your process at some point in time. That was not your decision as a company. It was the candidate's decision. So it's it's drop off from your pipeline, your interview pipeline that you didn't want as a company. And so that's a very specific success metric where you can at least isolate all these other variables and say, okay, candidate ghosted us or the candidate, we said we wanted to move them to the next stage and they said, no thanks. Or we gave them an offer and they declined it.
0: In your experience working in this industry, have there been better ideas for interview replacement? Is, is there something better than an interview to evaluate a potential candidate?
1: I don't know of one, but I know of a lot of like tactical things one can use while interviewing that might produce more or less signal but it's, this is like a holy grail question, you know. It's so hard, in fact, that you could hire somebody, as we all know, and they could knock it out of the park for the first six months on the job. And then the next six months on the job, they're not anymore. And so there's so many changing variables over time. It's just a really, it's just, it may not be that there's a perfect solution. But I would say getting as close as you can to real-life work sampling is probably a good direction, even if you can break that up into small, incomplete pieces. So this is hard depending on the role. If you're like assessing for something like leadership, for example, and a lot of it is like strategy, it may not be as easy to get a direct work sample, but we know in cases, and we've done this ourselves quite a bit, when the candidate doesn't already have a full-time job, persuading them to work with us for a couple weeks paid as the interview is something that we've done in it for engineering roles. Something else that has been more universally effective for us Is writing. And so we actually have moved the majority of our entire interview process to asynchronous writing. And the majority of our interviews, they don't happen in Zoom like this, they happen in a Google Doc. And it's been one of the most helpful shifts that we've made as a company. And we're in love, like, it's not a thing we plan to do away with anytime soon. So it kind of tells you, like,
0: what is writing asynchronously, you know, something that's helpful?
1: I think it's because of the point you posed which is this is how we work. We're a fully global remote company as well. And so much of our conversations, decisions, interactions are happening with written words. They're happening in Slack. They're happening in documents. We're going back and forth on a Slack thread or a comment chain as much as we are, if not more than we are hopping on a Zoom or an audio chat. It's actually a combination of all these things. So our interview process is designed to mirror the ways in which we work. So you start at the very beginning of the interview process. We do a quick Zoom. It's like the sort of early meet and greet. We assess a few things. Then we move to writing. The next several stages are in writing only. And then at the end, we bring you back into like a presentation-style meeting with a team in a call like this. And uh, mind you, in between, you're talking to us in a Slack channel or you're in Guide. We now have comms features in Guide that, that serves to replace Slack. But nonetheless, that's where our work happens. And so we can get signals like, for example... Like, what are response times like? Like, you're in another time zone, maybe we're in like, what is it actually like to work together? And this is exactly what it's going to be like next week after we hire you. And for you, too, I think that's key too. it's for the candidates to understand how we work, because we're probably not going to change how we work when one person comes in and it doesn't love it, at least not every time. So they ought to find value, I would say, in that, too. We've had candidates, for example, interview this way and they're just like, screw this. I want to be on calls. Can we jump on a call? And we're just like, we don't love jumping on calls. (laughs) This is not how we operate. Like we're down to jump on a call. I need an agenda. I need a hard stop. And like, we have a culture that goes to call as like the plan C and that's not everybody's cup of tea. So it's all just a hack though, to get closer to what exactly what you said. How do we simulate the actual work environment? How do you feel about employer branding and how does that fit with the trust framework and also balancing employer branding versus the recruitment process? I think the concept of employer brand is kind of a bit of just misnomer entirely. Like it's talked about like this big squishy thing that doesn't actually really exist. When you ask people like, what do you actually mean? They're like, yeah, what do you do? Like, oh, our glass door ratings or some weird tactical things. And so my view on this is employer brand is actually all the hand to hand combat that's really happening at every interaction along the way. It's like your employer brand is like actually the collateral that you deliver at every stage of the interview process, almost like a sales process. Your employer brand is like the speed at which you respond to messages from candidates. Your employer brand is the amount of questions that they don't have to ask before they interview with you because they already know the answers. It's pretty tactical. It looks like marketing and sales operations more than it looks like brand marketing, which the word employer brand would suggest. Now, this is heavily colored by my universe of very early stage technology startups that are between, you know, five and 5,000 people. I'm not talking about like the GEs or Cokes or Googles, because I I do think there is something else going on there. Like Google had what I would call an employer brand for a while. I don't know that it still exists as much, but like five, 10 years ago, it was like, You knew if you can get your dream job, you know, there was a movie made about working at Google, like they had all this, that sort of, they did create some sort of brand magic there, but I just think it's more often than not the tactical stuff. It's like, is like, do startups that grow or does like your company, like as a small company, that's like doing something important, but doesn't have 10,000 employees. Like, do you have a brand? Not in maybe a traditional sense, but in a very relational sense, like everybody that interacts with you thinks some way about you. Those interactions are what matters. I do wonder in remote world, something I think about along these lines, like I think the short answer is I don't have a strong lean either way. I think trust is just important if you're working with humans and it, it doesn't matter. Like trust is one of those things where if I don't trust the people I work with, I'm a flight risk, whether I'm working in the office or not. Like, you know, if I have other options, I should say.
0: Do you think that a something like a trust framework to establish a measure of trust is more important in a, in a remote first company? Mm-hmm.
1: I might like be sympathetic to the idea that it's harder to build in a remote work environment, though I'm not sure I find that to be my personal experience. I've never really found it to be like that true, that like a great Zoom call isn't a good trust building activity. But I know many people who find that to be true for them. But uh, it may very well be the case in general. It's hard to say. I think that having a way to measure this it may be harder just to get a read, right? Our human gut and intuition is getting maybe more data in like an interview where I'm with somebody for eight hours a day on site in between the calls, having a lunch, the, the water cooler type stuff that I, I do believe does happen, end up in less structure. Like our company is fully remote. I'm a little bit on a tangent here, but we were just talking about this the other day. We still do quite a bit of like offsites, team level offsites. I should call them onsites, where everybody that's offsite comes together or some people and does a week of work. I just came off one of these with uh, our product and marketing team. And it's such a strange thing. Magic happens 100% of the time we do this. We always leave going, damn it oh, we want to be like a really like a remote, hardcore remote company. But why in the hell do we always come off three to five days together going, holy shit, what if we didn't do that? Like, you know, it's very strange. And and so we were talking about this recently and we were like, what what is it? And I think it's part of like the call. You're never going to put an eight hour Zoom call on the calendar. It sounds like it's possible, but it's actually not possible. I don't think any of us have ever done it, I would, I would say. You just don't actually do it. We can't do it. <laughs> so there's something about being with somebody in the same room for eight hours where there's stuff that happens that can't happen in an hour and a half there's there's weird non-agenda time and there's like there's a silly 10 minutes where we just need a breather and we're like being silly in the, in the room or like going to we need to eat a meal so we're gonna do that together because like it's got to happen at some point point. and like i would normally kill my zoom while i do that you know i think that stuff does matter so i don't know i think that the answer would probably be yes if i have more of a like wide-ranging experience but it's hard to say in my like little universe
0: Troy, I realize we're at the hour. I want to respect your time. Thank you so much for spending this with us and leaving us on a particularly inspired note. That we really need to do an onsite. We've been <laughs> every year. A priority. We haven't we haven't met most of each other. Yeah, but, um, uh, totally. We're, we're also. You, you guys are mostly in the United States, right? We do an annual meetup. We have a broader team that's all over,
1: but we every year we do an annual meetup. It's it's also worth it, but we spend most of that time on like.
0: Troy, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Love you to death and huge fam. Please let us know you know, how we can support the company and the framework getting it out there. And, uh, and I've just learned so much today and look forward to sharing these learnings and implementing them in our own work. And thank you for everything you've done for us and, and for the whole industry.
1: Thank you guys for having me. This is super fun. I heard about all of you and the business from John's very colorful point of view all the time. And uh, it's just fun to see everyone's faces. And yeah, let's do some more. Happy, happy to chat anytime. Love it. I'll see you next week in in the flesh, John. Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait. Talk is great to see <laughs> too. See you, Chris. See you, Lena. Okay. okay.
0: Bye, y'all. Thanks, guys. Bye.